Section 10 of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 4, Part 1. Girlhood of Anna Brangwen. When Anna was nine years old, Brangwen sent her to the dame school in Cossethay. There she went, flipping and dancing in her inconsequential fashion, doing very much as she liked, disconcerting old Miss Coates by her indifference to respectability and by her lack of reverence. Anna only laughed at Miss Coates, liked her, and patronized her in superb, childish fashion. The girl was at once shy and wild. She had a curious contempt for ordinary people, a benevolent superiority. She was very shy and tortured with misery when people did not like her. On the other hand, she cared very little for anybody save her mother, whom she still rather resentfully worshipped, and her father, whom she loved and patronized, but upon whom she depended. These two, her mother and father, held her still in fee, but she was free of other people towards whom, on the whole, she took the benevolent attitude. She deeply hated ugliness or intrusion or arrogance, however. As a child, she was as proud and shadowy as a tiger and as aloof. She could confer favors, but, save from her mother and father, she could receive none. She hated people who came too near to her. Like a wild thing, she wanted her distance. She mistrusted intimacy. In Cossethay and Ilkston, she was always an alien. She had plenty of acquaintances, but no friends. Very few people whom she met were significant to her. They seemed part of a herd, undistinguished. She did not take people very seriously. She had two brothers, Tom, dark-haired, small, volatile, whom she was intimately related to, but whom she never mingled with, and Fred, fair and responsive, whom she adored but did not consider as a real, separate thing. She was too much the center of her own universe, too little aware of anything outside. The first person she met who affected her as a real, living person, whom she regarded as having definite existence, was Baron Skrebensky, her mother's friend. He also was a Polish exile who had taken orders and had received from Mr. Gladstone a small country living in Yorkshire. When Anna was about ten years old, she went with her mother to spend a few days with the Baron Skrebensky. He was very unhappy in his red brick vicarage. He was vicar of a country church, a living worth a little over 200 pounds a year, but he had a large parish containing several collieries with a new, raw, heathen population. He went to the north of England expecting homage from the common people, for he was an aristocrat. He was roughly, even cruelly, received, but he never understood it. He remained a fiery aristocrat, only he had to learn to avoid his parishioners. Anna was very much impressed by him. He was a smallish man with a rugged, rather crumpled face and blue eyes set very deep and glowing. His wife was a tall, thin woman of noble Polish family, mad with pride. He still spoke broken English, for he had kept very close to his wife, both of them forlorn in this strange, inhospitable country, and they always spoke in Polish together. He was disappointed with Mrs. Brangwen's soft, natural English, very disappointed that her child spoke no Polish. 
Anna loved to watch him. She liked the big new rambling vicarage, desolate and stark on its hill. It was so exposed, so bleak and bold after the marsh. The Baron talked endlessly in Polish to Mrs. Brangwen. He made furious gestures with his hands. His blue eyes were full of fire. And to Anna there was a significance about his sharp, flinging movements. Something in her responded to his extravagance and his exuberant manner. She thought him a very wonderful person. She was shy of him. She liked him to talk to her. She felt a sense of freedom near him. She never could tell how she knew it, but she did know that he was a knight of Malta. She could never remember whether she had seen his star or cross of his order or not, but it flashed in her mind like a symbol. He at any rate represented to the child the real world, where kings and lords and princes moved and fulfilled their shining lives, whilst queens and ladies and princesses upheld the noble order. She had recognized the Baron Strabensky as a real person. He had had some regard for her. But when she did not see him any more, he faded and became a memory. But as a memory, he was always alive to her. Anna became a tall, awkward girl. Her eyes were still very dark and quick, but they had grown careless. They had lost their watchful, hostile look. Her fierce, spun hair turned brown. It grew heavier and was tied back. She was sent to a young lady's school in Nottingham. And at this period, she was absorbed in becoming a young lady. She was intelligent enough, but not interested in learning. At first she thought all the girls at school very ladylike and wonderful, and she wanted to be like them. She came to a speedy disillusion. They galled and maddened her. They were petty and mean. After the loose, generous atmosphere of her home, where little things did not count, she was always uneasy in the world that would snap and bite at every trifle. A quick change came over her. She mistrusted herself. She mistrusted the outer world. She did not want to go on. She did not want to go out into it. She wanted to go no further. What do I care about that lot of girls, she would say to her father contemptuously. They are nobody. The trouble was that the girls would not accept Anna at her measure. They would have her according to themselves or not at all. So she was confused, seduced. She became as they were for a time, and then, in revulsion, she hated them furiously. Why don't you ask some of your girls here, her father would say. They're not coming here, she cried. And why not? They're bagatelles, she said, using one of her mother's rare phrases. Bagatelles or billiards, it makes no matter. They're nice young lasses enough. But Anna was not to be won over. She had a curious shrinking from commonplace people, and particularly from the young lady of her day. She would not go into company because of the ill-at-ease feeling other people brought upon her, and she never could decide whether it was her fault or theirs. She half-respected these other people, and continuous disillusion maddened her. She wanted to respect them. Still, she thought, the people she did not know were wonderful. Those she knew seemed always to be limiting her, tying her up in little falsities that irritated her beyond bearing. She would rather stay at home and avoid the rest of the world, leaving it illusory. For at the marsh, life had indeed a certain freedom and largeness. There was no fret about money, no mean little precedence, nor care for what other people thought, because neither Mrs. Brangwen nor Brangwen could be sensible of any judgment passed on them from outside. Their lives were too separate. 
So Anna was only easy at home, where the common sense and the supreme relation between her parents produced a freer standard of being than she could find outside. Where, outside the marsh, could she find the tolerant dignity she had been brought up in? Her parents stood undiminished and unaware of criticism. The people she met outside seemed to begrudge her her very existence. They seemed to want to belittle her also. She was exceedingly reluctant to go amongst them. She depended upon her mother and her father, and yet she wanted to go out. At school or in the world, she was usually at fault. She felt usually that she ought to be slinking in disgrace. She never felt quite sure in herself whether she were wrong or whether the others were wrong. She had not done her lessons. Well, she did not see any reason why she should do her lessons if she did not want to. Was there some occult reason why she should? Were these people, schoolmistresses, representatives of some mystic right, some higher good? They seemed to think so themselves, but she could not for her life see why a woman should bully and insult her because she did not know thirty lines of as you like it. After all, what did it matter if she knew them or not? Nothing could persuade her that it was of the slightest importance, because she despised inwardly the coarsely working nature of the mistress. Therefore, she was always at outs with authority. From constant telling, she came almost to believe in her own badness, her own intrinsic inferiority. She felt that she ought always to be in a state of slinking disgrace if she fulfilled what was expected of her. But she rebelled. She never really believed in her own badness. At the bottom of her heart, she despised the other people who carped and were loud over trifles. She despised them and wanted revenge on them. She hated them whilst they had power over her. Still, she kept an ideal, a free, proud lady absolved from the petty ties existing beyond petty considerations. She would see such ladies in pictures. Alexandra, Princess of Wales, was one of her models. This lady was proud and royal and stepped indifferently over all small, mean desires. So thought Anna in her heart and the girl did up her hair high under a little slanting hat. Her skirts were fashionably bunched up. She wore an elegant, skin-fitting coat. Her father was delighted. Anna was very proud in her bearing, too naturally indifferent to smaller bonds to satisfy Ilkston, which would have liked to put her down. But Brangwen was having no such thing. If she chose to be royal, royal she should be. He stood like a rock between her and the world. After the fashion of his family, he grew stout and handsome. His blue eyes were full of light, twinkling and sensitive. His manner was deliberate, but hearty, warm. His capacity for living his own life without attention from his neighbors made them respect him. They would run to do anything for him. He did not consider them, but was open-handed towards them, so they made profit of their willingness. He liked people so long as they remained in the background. Mrs. Brangwen went on in her own way, following her own devices. She had her husband, her two sons, and Anna. These staked out and marked her horizon. The other people were outsiders. Inside her own world, her life passed along like a dream for her. It lapsed, and she lived within its lapse, active and always pleased, intent. She scarcely noticed the outer things at all. What was outside was outside, non-existent. 
She did not mind if the boys fought, so long as it was out of her presence. But if they fought when she was by, she was angry, and they were afraid of her. She did not care if they broke a window of a railway carriage or sold their washes to have a revel at the goose fair. Brangwen was perhaps angry over these things. To the mother they were insignificant. It was odd little things that offended her. She was furious if the boys hung around the slaughterhouse. She was displeased when the school reports were bad. It did not matter how many sins her boys were accused of, so long as they were not stupid or inferior. If they seemed to brook insult, she hated them. And it was only a certain gaucherie, a gawkiness on Anna's part that irritated her against the girl. Certain forms of clumsiness, grossness, made the mother's eyes glow with curious rage. Otherwise, she was pleased and different. Pursuing her splendid lady ideal, Anna became a lofty demoiselle of 16, plagued by family shortcomings. She was very sensitive to her father. She knew if he had been drinking, were he ever so little affected, and she could not bear it. He flushed when he drank, his veins stood out on his temples, there was a twinkling, cavalier boisterousness in his eye, his manner was jovially overbearing and mocking, and it angered her. When she heard his loud, roaring, boisterous mockery, an anger of resentment filled her. She was quick to forestall him the moment he came in. "'You look a sight, you do, red in the face,' she cried. "'I might look worse if I was green,' he answered. "'Boozing in Ilkston. "'And what's wrong with Ilson?' "'She flounced away. "'He watched her with amused, twinkling eyes, "'yet in spite of himself said that she flouted him. "'They were a curious family, a law to themselves, "'separate from the world, isolated, "'a small republic set in invisible bounds. "'The mother was quite indifferent to Ilkston and Cossette, "'to any claims made on her from outside.' She was very shy of any outsider, exceedingly courteous, winning even. But the moment the visitor had gone, she laughed and dismissed him. He did not exist. It had all been a game to her. She was still a foreigner, unsure of her ground. But alone with her own children and husband at the marsh, she was mistress of a little native land that lacked nothing. She had some beliefs somewhere never defined. She had been brought up a Roman Catholic. She had gone to the Church of England for protection. The outward form was a matter of indifference to her, yet she had some fundamental religion. It was as if she worshipped God as a mystery, never seeking in the least to define what he was. And inside her the subtle sense of the great absolute, wherein she had her being, was very strong. The English dogma never reached her. The language was too foreign. Through it all she felt the great separator who held life in his hands, gleaming, imminent, terrible, the great mystery, immediate beyond all telling. She shone and gleamed to the mystery whom she knew through all her senses. She glanced with strange mystic superstitions that never found expression in the English language, never mounted to thought in English. But so she lived within a potent, sensuous belief that included her family and contained her destiny. To this she had reduced her husband. He existed with her entirely indifferent to the general values of the world. Her very ways, the very mark of her eyebrows, were symbols and indication to him. There on the farm with her he lived through a mystery of life and death and creation, strange, profound ecstasies and incommunicable satisfactions 
of which the rest of the world knew nothing, which made the pair of them apart and respected in the English village, for they were also well-to-do. But Anna was only half safe within her mother's unthinking knowledge. She had a mother-of-pearl rosary that had been her own father's. What it meant to her she could never say. But the string of moonlight and silver, when she had it between her fingers, filled her with strange passion. She learned at school a little Latin. She learned an Ave Maria and a Pater Noster. She learned how to say her rosary. But that was no good. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tucum, Benedicta tu in molierbos et benedictus fructus ventris tui Jesu. Ave Maria, Sancta Maria, ora pro nobis pectoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. It was not right somehow. What these words meant when translated was not the same as the pale rosary meant. There was a discrepancy, a falsehood. It irritated her to say, Dominus tecum, or Benedicta tu in mulierbus. She loved the mystic words, Ave Maria, Sancta Maria. She was moved by Benedictus fructus ventri tui Jesus, and by nunc et in hora mortis nostre. But none of it was quite real. It was not satisfactory somehow. She avoided her rosary because, moving with curious passion as it did, it meant only these not very significant things. She put it away. It was her instinct to put all these things away. It was her instinct to avoid thinking, to avoid it, to save herself. She was seventeen, touchy, full of spirits, and very moody, quick to flush and always uneasy, uncertain. For some reason or other, she turned more to her father. She felt almost flashes of hatred for her mother. Her mother's dark muzzle and curiously insidious ways, her mother's utter surety and confidence, her strange satisfaction, even triumph, her mother's ways of laughing at things and her mother's silent overriding of vexatious propositions, most of all her mother's triumphant power maddened the girl. She became sudden and incalculable. Often she stood at the window looking out as if she wanted to go. Sometimes she went, she mixed with people, but always she came home in anger, as if she were diminished, belittled, almost degraded. There was over the house a kind of dark silence and intensity in which passion worked its inevitable conclusions. There was in the house a sort of richness, a deep, inarticulate interchange which made other places seem thin and unsatisfying. Brangman could sit silent, smoking in his chair, the mother could move about in her quiet, insidious way, and the sense of the two presences was powerful, sustaining. The whole intercourse was wordless, intense, and close. But Anna was uneasy. She wanted to get away. Yet wherever she went, there came upon her that feeling of thinness, as if she were made smaller, belittled. She hastened home. There she raged and interrupted the strong, settled interchange. Sometimes her mother turned on her with a fierce, destructive anger in which was no pity or consideration, and Anna shrank, afraid. She went to her father. He would still listen to the spoken word which fell sterile on the unheeding mother. Sometimes Anna talked to her father. She tried to discuss people. She wanted to know what was meant. But her father became uneasy. He did not want to have things dragged into consciousness. Only out of consideration for her he listened. 
and there was a kind of bristling rousedness in the room. The cat got up and stretched itself, went uneasily to the door. Mrs. Brangwen was silent. She seemed ominous. Anna could not go on with her fault-finding, her criticism, her expression of dissatisfactions. She felt even her father against her. He had a strong, dark bond with her mother, a potent intimacy that existed inarticulate and wild, following its own course, and savage, if interrupted, uncovered. Nevertheless, Brangwen was uneasy about the girl. The whole house continued to be disturbed. She had a pathetic, baffled appeal. She was hostile to her parents, even whilst she lived entirely with them, within their spell. Many ways she tried of escape. She became an assiduous churchgoer. But the language meant nothing to her. It seemed false. She hated to hear things expressed, put into words. Whilst the religious feelings were inside her, they were passionately moving. In the mouth of the clergyman, they were false, indecent. She tried to read, but again the tedium and the sense of the falsity of the spoken word put her off. She went to stay with girlfriends. At first she thought it splendid, but then the inner boredom came on. It seemed to her all nothingness, and she felt always belittled, as if never, never could she stretch her length and stride her stride. Her mind reverted often to the torture cell of a certain bishop of France, in which the victim could neither stand nor lie stretched out, never. Not that she thought of herself in any connection with this, but often there came into her mind the wonder how the cell was built, and she could feel the horror of the crampedness as something very real. She was, however, only eighteen when a letter came from Mrs. Alfred Brangwen in Nottingham, saying that her son William was coming to Ilkston to take a place as junior draftsman, scarcely more than apprentice, in a lace factory. He was twenty years old and would the Marsh Brangwins be friendly with him. Tom Brangwen at once wrote offering the young man a home at the Marsh. This was not accepted, but the Nottingham Brangwins expressed gratitude. There had never been much love lost between the Nottingham Brangwins and the Marsh. Indeed, Mrs. Alfred, having inherited three thousand pounds and having occasion to be dissatisfied with her husband, held aloof from all the Brangwins whatsoever. She affected, however, some esteem of Mrs. Tom, as she called the Polish woman, saying that at any rate she was a lady. End of section 10. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown.